This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Rachel Maddow Show, The Breakdown from The Nation magazine, The Majority Report, Countdown with Keith Olbermann, and The Political Scene from The New Yorker magazine with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Rachel Maddow Show. Is it your sense that your caucus, the Democrats in the Senate, are willing to look at reigning in the filibuster through a rules change, doing something else to break this supermajority stranglehold? This is a dysfunctional set of rules. It wasn't all that dysfunctional. Well, it was dysfunctional in the 50s and 60s on civil rights, but they broke that. Finally, progressives did and moved the country forward. We haven't been able to with nearly the regularity that we'd like to. And, and it's, we're the only democratic country in the world, I think, that has this supermajority requirement to change the status quo. And the status quo always protects the most affluent and the most privileged. And that's why it's so important to, to change these rules so ultimately a majority actually would rule in this country. You have proposed making what happens in the Senate more like what we imagine when we think of the filibuster. We want a system that actually enables the Senate to debate and to tackle the problems America faces. It used to be in the Senate that if you were filibustering, you stood up, there was a physical dimension to it that you, when you became exhausted, you'd have to leave the floor. That was the idea of the filibuster. Now it's a threat. It's a procedural device. It's used as a weapon of partisanship. Senator Bennett, I understand you're going to announce a, a wide-ranging plan for some congressional reforms, including some filibuster reforms. You want to sneak preview any of those for us? I think we should think very seriously about how to uh, reduce the thresholds that are required when it's clear that uh, delay is the only thing that's happening. I would love to change this 60-vote rule and filibuster rule. When I look at that graph that I showed in the intro here of the filibuster, it makes me think, hey, this needs to be fixed. Hey, this is a problem that's being abused. Mm -hmm. Does it make you feel that way too? Does yes. it make people in the Senate generally Especially feel that way? Especially some of the newer senators that have come in that aren't just you know steeped in the tradition of this wonderful filibuster. We see it as a problem. So would you you would support efforts to change the rules around the filibuster so that there won't be a 60 vote threshold for every vote? Well, that's right, not for every vote. We're gonna have to change some of the rules and I know how to do it and we're gonna have to take a hard look at it. They have abused the rules. You can't have 60 votes be the vote of the day. It's never been that way before. Noticing a theme here? Needing a giant supermajority to pass anything through the Senate is where Washington is most broken right now. Yes, there are a lot of weak links in that particular chain, but this is the weakest one. This is where our ability to fix the problems we have as a country has died. Uh, but it can be fixed. The idea of fixing what's broken in the Senate is very popular when you ask senators about it. Even Majority Leader Harry Reid, who has the most power of anyone to do anything about it, says he thinks this should be fixed. Out of all the senators I've asked about it in the past more than a year, the only senator who said no, the filibuster should not be reformed, was Chris Dodd. And Chris Dodd is now retiring. What is brewing in the background right now, as majority rule means nothing, and Washington spends another day falling apart, is this idea that maybe it is time to fix the thing that's most bro broken in Washington. Maybe it's time to fix the Senate. There are very few problems in American politics that can be fixed with one vote on one day on one issue. But on the first day of the new Congress, if 51 senators vote to change the rules of the Senate, then the Senate can be unbroken. 
they can stop the it automatically takes 60 votes to pass anything situation that has held true for the past four years in that institution. They can only make the rules change on the first day of the Congress. They've got one shot at it on one day. There is a very small and specific window for getting it done. There are three weeks between now and the date on which they would have to vote, January 5th, the only date on which they'd be allowed to vote on the single biggest problem in American politics. Only 21 days left to figure out if they're going to fix the weakest link in the chain, they need 51 votes to do it, or if they're going to just leave it be for another two years. Set your watch, January 5th, TikTok. We got a lot of questions about everyone's favorite topic of conversation of late, the filibuster. Rachel Maddow, as you know, has been running a campaign to rename the filibuster and been getting some suggestions. I was on the show earlier this week to talk about it, and we got a lot of questions that more or less mattered at how do we get rid of the thing? Perhaps the most concise version of that comes from Twitter user Jam Meyerson. He writes to say, why would a change in Senate rules like abolition or mitigation of the filibuster be exempt from a cloture vote? Okay, we are going to answer this question, and it's going to get pretty wonky, but we assume that if you're listening to my voice right now, that is the sort of thing you're into. Let's start by sort of laying out the conditions that we're dealing with. Senate Rule 22 is a part of the rules and procedures that govern the Senate. It requires a vote of 60 senators to close debate or cloture on a motion to move the matter forward. What has happened, obviously, over the last few Congresses, particularly when the Republicans are in minority, is that they have taken what used to be a rarely invoked procedure, which is the filibuster, and made it just absolutely standard and de rigueur. I mean, you can look at the graphs. We'll link to it on the website that show that it's just skyrocketed. In the 50s, there was about one cloture invocation per session. We're now looking at about 140 for the last Congress. So it's totally out of control. Okay, what do we do about it? Well, there's a few different options, and I'm going to walk through them from the most difficult to achieve to the easiest to achieve. The most straightforward way to reform the filibuster is to change the rules. And it's very clear in Senate Rule 22, which spells out cloture, that in order to change the rules, all you need is a majority vote. But, alas, if someone objects and they filibuster your attempt to change the rules, you need two-thirds or 67 votes to overcome that filibuster. So let's say... They propose a resolution to change the filibuster, and someone obviously from some party, the Republicans, is going to object. And so to override that filibuster, they're going to need 67 votes. So there's actually two different kinds of filibusters. There's the regular filibuster of 60 votes for laws, and there's a higher threshold filibuster of 67 vote override for any of the rules and procedures. So I think we can safely say no one's going to get 67 votes to overturn the filibuster through the straightforward way of going through the rules and procedures. Tom Harkin and Gene Shaheen, who are two senators, have introduced legislation that would reform the filibuster in the following way. The first time you brought a motion up for cloture, it would require 60 votes. But then two days later, you could bring it up again. It would only require 57. And two days later, you can bring it up again. It would be down to 55 and so on and so on until you got down to 51. Now, there's an interesting question, which is that 
Does that bill need the 60 votes to cross the legislative cloture hurdle, or does it need the 67 because it's changing a rule? Harry Reid's office seems to indicate they believe because it's changing a Senate rule, it needs 67. So it's highly unlikely that we're going to see that Harkin-Shaheen bill pass, although, you know, who knows? Okay, so that's the most straightforward way. Now we're going to talk about other ways that we could change the filibuster that don't require 67 votes, and in fact, don't even require 60. And there are two ways, conceivably, this can be done. The first has to do with the fact that at the beginning of every session, the Senate sets rules for that session. So at the beginning of the 110th Congress on the first day, the Senate is going to pass some rules that apply to that Congress. Now, there's a fascinating legal question here. And the legal question is this. Is the Senate a continuing body? Which is to say, is there a gap in the rules? Do the rules from the previous Senate control the current Senate? Now, some people argue that the answer to that is yes, for the following reason. Only a third of the Senate turns over in every Congress. And so there's always a quorum from the old Senate in the new Senate. And therefore, it's a continuing body and there is no gap in the rules. But back in 1957, this question was brought up precisely for the reasons we're dealt with now, which is a senator wanted to change the rules of the filibuster. And he asked the presiding officer, and the presiding officer at the time was a man by the name of Richard Milhouse Nixon, and he did not issue an official ruling, but he basically said no. There is a moment at the beginning of the Senate where only majority rules control. And when you think about it, there's a certain logic to this for this reason. Let's imagine that the Senate were to pass a rule in which they required 85 votes to pass anything. What you would find yourself in is a one-way ratchet, which is the Senate could bind future Senates to have higher and higher thresholds in order to pass laws, and they could never ratchet it back down. So think about the logic of that. You could imagine a Senate saying, we need more unanimity, we're going to have 90 or 95 votes, and if it is the case that the Senate is a continuing body, it would mean it would never essentially be possible to ratchet that back down unless you can get the 80 or 85 votes in the future. And so I think there's a strong case to be made, and there's some precedent to this because it's been tried several times, where at the beginning of the session, what's controlling the Senate rules is just basic parliamentary procedure. And so at the beginning of the Senate, a Democratic senator could propose changing rule 22 and what would happen is this someone would object and they would raise a constitutional point of order that by proposing to revoke rule 22 they were evading the rules of the senate and that was unconstitutional and the chair would rule on that motion and let's say the chair ruled on the motion that you're not right or the chair could give the motion to the senate but here's the key thing when he referred the motion to the senate right? In which the Republican is objected and says, you can't do this. When he refers the motion to the Senate, the Senate votes on a majority basis. And so if the Senate voted at that moment on a majority basis to say, no, you're wrong in your objection. It's not true. All they need is 51 votes. So the key is that you need to jump through a series of procedural hurdles to sort of transmogrify yourself from the world of the 60 votes to the world of the 50 votes. And one way of doing that is raising this procedural issue at the beginning of the Congress, allowing someone to reject, and then the chair referring the matter of that appeal to the floor of the Senate. So in order to do this, you would have to do it at the beginning of the new Congress. But what if you don't want to wait to the beginning of the new Congress? What if you wanted to change the filibuster now? Ah, we arrive at the notorious 2005 nuclear option, you will all recall. The Republicans used to really hate the filibuster, and in fairness to good faith, there were a lot of liberals who loved it when we were in the minority. Those liberals were wrong, I will say. And a nuclear option, the idea goes like this. What is the ultimate arbiter of the constitutionality of a Senate procedure? This is the legal question on the table. 
And the answer to that is the United States Senate. And the mechanism by which that constitutionality is defined is through what's called a point of order. So imagine the following scenario. A motion on the floor fails to get cloture, right? It doesn't get the 60 votes. A Democratic senator rises up and he says, I make a point of order. A point of order is a technical term basically saying, I want to raise a constitutional objection to what is happening on the floor. Remember, the Senate body is the ultimate arbiter of the constitutionality of its own rules. And this senator says, I'm raising a point of order against the 60-vote cloture rule. It's a violation of the spirit of the Constitution and the letter of the Constitution. Remember, the Constitution requires when the Senate has supermajority requirements in terms of ratifying a treaty, right, 67 votes. And so it's implied that everything else is majority. So the senator says, I'm raising a point of order. This is unconstitutional. The chair would then rule on the motion, and he would say... Again, let's say that everyone's behind this, right? Vice President Joe Biden's behind this. He would say, you are right. And immediately a Republican would raise up and say, I object. I appeal the chair's ruling. Okay, now we've hit 51 vote pay dirt because there would then be a motion on the floor to table the appeal. A little confusing, but let's just step through it one more time. Senator gets up, he raises a point of order. He says the filibuster is unconstitutional. It's sustained by the vice president, who's the chair. A Republican or someone else objects and says, no, no, no. I appeal the ruling, and then a motion is introduced to table the appeal. The motion to table the appeal can pass with 51 votes. And so all it would take would be a, a majority of the, the Senate, 50 plus the one, because the vice president could vote if there were a tiebreaker to sustain that appeal, and you would have gotten rid of the filibuster and created an entirely new precedent. I mean, this would be a massive shift in the way the Senate conducted business. So that's the way the filibuster so-called nuclear option would play out. Now, I've gone on quite long here, but I'm going to make two more points. One is that in order to do any of this, you still need the 50 votes. Plus, you need the vice president on board. It's unclear whether those 50 votes are there. Senators are conservative creatures. They belong to the most exclusive club in the world. They don't like change, as we've seen. <laughs> and the filibuster has a perverse result of conferring maximal power on each senator, right? The harder it is to get to 60, the more power you have as an individual member. Second of all, it's important here to look back at the history of the evolution of the filibuster's institution. Until 1917, there was no filibuster, there was just unlimited debate, which means just one senator could debate forever. And then in 1917, Democratic senators who were objecting to some isolation of Republicans who were blocking votes on things having to do with the Treaty of Versailles and the end of World War I said, this is insane, we can't conduct any business. And so they forced the issue, they made a point of order, and what ended up happening was a compromise was forged in which cloture was invoked at two-thirds. And then, again, it was tested in 1957, and it survived. It was tested after Watergate by Frank Church. And, again, it was brought to the brink of a procedural constitutional crisis, and a, a compromise was forged to bring it down to 60 votes. And what's important about this history is that, in some ways, the procedural details I've laid out for you in this podcast, those are secondary to the level of political will. The history of the evolution and, and reform of the filibuster has always been a situation in which there is a groundswell of support, a broad recognition the institution is broken, it's dysfunctional, it's impeding progress. There is momentum behind the people that want to change it, and they force the issue. And because the issue is never actually settled, for all the reasons I laid out, what ends up happening is they sort of step back from the break and everyone comes up with a compromise. And we saw that with the Gang of Twelve with the nuclear option. The important thing to, to recognize about this is that if Democrats want to change the filibuster, it is incumbent upon them to force the issue, to actually create a political groundswell, to really start moving the train forward, and then let the opponents try to figure out how they're going to avoid the crash.
So let's presuppose for a moment that you actually enjoy this show. Now, if that's true, please consider supporting it with a $5 monthly membership. I actually quit my job as a climate activist to pursue this show full-time because this is where I felt like my talents could best be put to use and I could have the biggest impact on the world. But I really need your support to keep it going. I produce 10 shows a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule posting shows at least every third day. So if all that is worth 5 bucks a month or as little as $55, a year, a little discount for you, please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. Members even receive bonus audio and video content on top of the rest that doesn't make it into the final cut of the show. So please, again, check out the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. Uh, this is what it's always been for me, folks, is the, the judiciary. That's why I wanted uh, Al Gore to win at that time, even though I was uh, slightly disenchanted with the Democratic Party as being too corporate at that time. For me, it was the Supreme Court. Uh, looks like we got there just a little bit too late for Al Gore. Uh, and, of course, we're not talking uh, Supreme Court here. We're talking uh, on the appellate and the... Um, circuit district levels uh... 39.8% of obama's judges having been confirmed uh... that is a pair uh, compared to um, well of the hundred and three district uh, and circuit court nominees only forty one have been cons uh, confirmed forty one by this time in gw's presidency the senate had concerned confirmed seventy six percent of his nominees almost twice clinton was eighty nine percent at this point in his tenure Obama's nominating pace also lags behind his predecessors. He has 103 total nominations uh, as opposed to 142 by Clinton, 130 by Bush. Reagan had 87 confirmations uh, by this point. George W. Bush had uh, moved 70 uh, judges through Democratic-controlled Senate. In other words, widespread failure to capitalize on and yes the senate is a broken institution i get that because of course the republicans completely you know there was a story i was traveling in australia as a young man somebody was explaining to me the difference between america and australia and apparently uh... there I believe it still remains, in the game of cricket. And you're doing like a three-day test match. Like normally cricket just goes on and on and on until it's over. There is no, it's it's like a, you know, as if like a nine-inning game could go, and it goes like days. But in a test match, there's a specific number of days. And, you know, forgive me, uh, my uh, British and uh, you post-colonist friends uh, if I get cricket wrong. But but my understanding was that when the test match started, it's four days and out. You're out at four days. It could end in a tie, but, you know. So you at one point you could run out the clock. In other words, you could, you could actually, uh, as a pitcher, roll the ball in and make it almost impossible for uh, the batting, the batsman, the batting team, to make up the difference, and you would just run out of time. 
and uh, there was a an infa- infamous game where the Australian team in Australia did this, and you know these cricket stadiums, seventy thousand people started to boo their own team mercilessly for doing this. They were ashamed. They, it was it was contrary to the to the notion of the game, even though they would win. Now contemplate that in the context of America, <laughs> of American sports. What they were doing was not illegal. What they were doing was not illegal. Now, there was no codification of like this is poor sports. It was simply decided by everybody watching like this is not how you play the game. Now, American society, it's impossible to imagine that. It really is impossible to imagine it. On the contrary, moments like, you know, the guy comes out, and I'm a Pats fan, so I'm just like, this is awesome. That dude who was on parole or was like a convict who was, you know, at halfway house comes out and snow plows against the, I think it was the Dolphins for that uh, field goal. I was like, yeah, man. <laughs> Are you shitting me? That's awesome. <laughs> it's home field bench, dude. Suck it up. <laughs> and I think I've told the story that one of the ways I made money in Australia, I realized this when we were going to, um, I was hanging out with a bunch of uh, drunks selling hot dogs. And we all went in the morning. Did I tell the story about no, no. how we all went to a movie theater? Uh, because it was Tuesdays, it was like half price, and at that time in Australia, like the movies were eleven bucks, which was a lot more than they were in the United States. But it was eleven Australian dollars, and we showed up there. We realized it's not, um, it's not half price Tuesdays, but you could buy a book of coupons for eleven, eleven tickets for the price of eight. So you pay eighty bucks, let's say, and you get eleven tickets, and normally it would cost you a hundred and ten. And there was like six of us. So we all went in, and then after we came out, we sold off the rest of them, of the coupons. And we made, we didn't make any money back. We made a buck or two, but I, or maybe we did this before we went in, because I remember, I remember the movie was Crossing Delancey, and I could not focus on the movie. All I was thinking, because I was broke, I was just traveling around, and I was like, wait a second, what's to keep me from doing this? Like, there is no place in America where this would happen. There is no movie theater that would sell you a coupon book for 11 tickets at the price of eight. You can't. It doesn't happen. Because every single person would go out and resell these tickets. And so that's what I did. I went out. I resold. I I would make 32 bucks in 15 minutes buying a a packet of coupons and going back into line thinking like they're going to bust me. This is there's no way. How could they how could they not have figured this out? I'm gaming the system. It's just like nobody in Australia would like think to do it. Like I went up to, you know, and I got nervous. I thought I'm going to get deported or whatever it was. <laughs> and I went up to like the, the counter and I was like, hey, is it all right if I um, uh, give these to my friends? Sure. What if they give me money back just to pay me back? Yeah. Sell them while we fuck all care. <laughs> what? Are you serious? But this notion of win at all costs, that's, that's the way it's played in America. And somehow our political class 
and really I'm talking more almost a journalistic uh, establishment. The, uh, the, the so-called centrist and left journalistic establishment in this country. Because uh, I think much of the lack of the democratic leadership's ability to, to see this could also be a function of uh, not seeing it also dovetailed with the other agenda, the other corporate agenda that they were fulfilling. That the Republican Party has no sense of ethics. They have no sense of Senate comedy. And I mean that like, you know, friendliness, collegiality, not, not comedy, comedy. And so the idea that they would take the filibuster, which was basically regulated by just sort of good taste in the past. First, they you remember when George Bush was, um, was putting up uh, judicial nominees, they were saying the idea of a filibuster is so extra-constitutional that we will pull the nuclear weapon and get rid of the entire thing. The nuclear, we'll drop the nuclear bomb and get rid of the entire thing. And a somber group of 14 had to meet in the middle to empower Joe Lieberman and dispel the use of this so that we could get right-wingers on the bench who then say that corporations are individuals and therefore can fund essentially campaigns to the tune of millions and hundreds of millions of dollars without any disclosure whatsoever. In a complete unfettered way. So that's the Republicans, uh, you know, six, eight years ago. And, uh, and then under uh, Obama, they have used the filibuster, you know, something like by a factor of four more times than have ever been used in the past. And have completely stopped any legislation from going forward. Uh, and they've been allowed to do this uh, with impunity because we have a completely ineffectual press and an equally ineffectual um, Democratic Party, aided and embedded by a completely ineffectual press. And at the same time, you still have had like these, this notion on the liberal establishment that, look, you know, there are certain ways of doing things. There are certain right things. Okay, they're holding us hostage, but we must, we must, for the good of the country, we must concede. And maybe at one point they'll realize that there, there, there's no conceding to these people. I'm back in Liverpool and everything seems the same. But I worked something out last night that changed this little boy's brain. A small piece of advice that took 22 years in the make. And I will break it for you now. Please learn from my mistakes. Please learn from my mistakes. Let's dance the joy division and celebrate the irony. Everything is going wrong, but we're so happy. Let's dance the joy division and raise our glass to the ceiling. Cause this could all go so wrong, but we're just so happy. Yeah, we're so happy. Good news tonight for returning Republican senators on the eve of their first day back at work. It appears they can keep their collective feet on their metaphoric desks. Because tomorrow it appears that Democrats will obstruct their own filibuster reform, perhaps for as long as two weeks. Still in our third story, with the threat that filibuster reform is looming, Republicans and the lobbyists who make money off of their obstruction are freaking out. 
Sponsors of filibuster reform, including Senators Merkley of Oregon and Udall of New Mexico, are expected to officially introduce their plans tomorrow. Among the fixes, Senators preventing bills from coming to the Senate floor would actually have to show up on the Senate floor in order to filibuster the bill. Right now, to quote Ron Popeil, Senators can set it and forget it. Democrats don't need Republican votes to make changes as long as they make them tomorrow. The Constitution allows rules changes to pass with a simple majority on the first day of a legislative session. Still, Senator Merkley yesterday told Politico there were mixed views about filibuster reform inside the Democratic caucus. Multiple outlets today reporting Majority Leader Reid could recess, not adjourn tomorrow's session, thus keeping the Senate's first legislative day officially open for two weeks until after the break for Martin Luther King Day. Today, hold up in their conservative heritage foundation ICE Fortress, Republicans and the lobbyists who love them spoke out against reform, leading the charge, Tennessee Senator Lamar Alexander, who bent logic over on top of itself by claiming that any reform forcing lawmakers to have their voices heard on the floor of the U.S. Senate meant those voices would be silenced. Voters who turned out in November are going to be pretty disappointed when they learn the first thing that some Democrats want to do is to cut off the right of people they elected in November to make their voices heard on the floor of the United States Senate. Senator Alexander went on to offer helpful advice to Democrats considering filibuster reform. Those who want to create a freight train running through the Senate today, as it does in the House, might think about whether they will want that freight train running through the Senate in two years, when the freight train might be the Tea Party Express. And then it was the lobbyists' turn to speak. Think Progress pointing out today that among the Heritage Foundation's experts hyperventilating about filibuster reform was Stephen Duffield, former aide to Senator John Kyle, but now policy director for Crossroads GPS and president of Endgame Strategies, LLC. Has anybody seen a text? Seen text of an uh, actual rules change? Is that out there? Has it been discussed? Have rules experts sat down and figured out how that would work? No one's done that. Among the services listed on lobbyist Duffield's Endgame Strategies website, managing holds and filibusters, the firm says it can connect clients with legislators, quote, often backbench Senate Republicans who may exercise their prerogatives to delay or obstruct. A business out of nothing. Joining me now, Lee Fong, investigative reporter for Think Progress. Good evening, sir. Good evening. Thanks for having me. You wrote today that Mr. Duffield was not uh, the only lobbyist protesting at the Heritage Foundation. Apparently a lot of people have found a way to get paid uh, because of Republican obstructionism. Yeah, you know, we've heard about this unprecedented era of Republican obstruction on the last two years. But what we reported is that Duffield is, you know, very unique here because he basically just sells Republican filibusters to corporations. But he's not the only one. Uh, one of the other lobbyists hosted by Heritage uh, is a guy named Bill Wichterman. Uh, is a longtime uh, Republican operative that now works at Covington and Burling. Uh, it's a lobbying firm that has advertised itself as being able to win legislative debates not by making the most compelling argument but by exploiting rules like uh, the secret hold and filibusters and you know exploiting the broken senate uh, to help their corporate benefactors and i should say that uh... bill wichterman uh... represents pharmaceutical companies copper companies mm -hmm. and also uh... blackwater uh, Senator Alexander spoke today warning Democrats not to do this. Mitch McConnell did the same thing in an op-ed in the Washington Post. If you're a Democrat, is that not all you need to know about this? The Republicans don't want this, even though if they take the Senate back in two years or whenever, this would be their magic wand. 
Obviously, this must be a great idea for Democrats. Why is that not, you know, easily tattooed on their own foreheads so they can read it backwards in the mirror every day? Well, you know, obviously uh, Alexander and McConnell aren't honest brokers here. They both benefit tremendously from the broken Senate. Uh, just to give you an example, last year, 2009 I should say, uh, Alexander uh, placed a hold on an appropriations bill at the behest of FedEx lobbyists to basically extract a ransom that would have benefited FedEx's bottom line. And of course McConnell, he's a, a walking, talking example of why there's a broken Senate. You know. Uh, He's basically made a career out of exploiting the broken rules. Um, he's not known for passing any substantive policy or finding any innovative solutions to problems in society. He's known for basically just obstruction. You know, the number of filibusters doubled the second he became the minority leader. And, you know, he made his intentions clear shortly after the midterm elections. Uh, he said that instead of, you know, helping the American people, his number one priority is making Obama a one-term president. And you always, in any time reform that is, is mentioned, any time somebody proposing it who voted against it at some point in the past is immediately held up as a reason to never have reform ever again. Alexander and McConnell both did this. Uh, the unanimous opposition to filibuster reform that was advanced by Senator Harkin uh, in 1995. Explain how that vote was different and how that, that reform proposed in 1995 was different. Well, for one thing, um, the 1995 is very different from the current era. Um, just to give you an example of how bad it's gotten, uh, the number of filibusters that have been launched in the last two years is greater than the number of filibusters in, launched in the 1950s and 60s combined. So we're living in a, in a completely new, unprecedented era. But uh, what Harkin proposed in 1995 is distinct from some of the rules that are going to be um, proposed initially tomorrow. Um, the main thrust of the, of the rules changes are just to add transparency and accountability to the system. Uh, for one thing, they want to end these secret holds that uh, you know, lobbyists like Stephen Duffield exploit and sell to corporations to block legislation anonymously. And the other thing is, you know, we want to, uh, Senate Democrats uh, want to propose a change so uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington actually exists again. Mm -hmm. So that uh, if you want to filibuster a bill, you actually have to show up in the chamber and explain yourself. Right now, under the status quo, um, a Republican senator sitting in Arizona can basically uh, sit in his sauna smoking a cigar and just give uh, uh, Mitch McConnell a phone call and say, you know, I want to filibuster something. He never actually has to show up in Washington, D.C. Uh, the rules will change that. Yeah, let him get up there and, and read the phone book. Uh, Lee Fong of Think Progress. Great. Thanks for your time, Lee. Get up, stand up. Get rid of the secret hold. Why does America want bills and judges and nominees to be secretly held? They want to know. The secret hold it gives, it gives any individual senator the power to bring the Senate to its knees. We're not asking anybody to give up their holds. We're only asking people to identify who they are. 
I intend to vote against the motion to proceed. They're going to block any other legislation, any other legislation from coming up for vote during this lame duck session. I will vote against the motion to proceed to this bill. Closures vote on a motion to proceed. There'd be 30 minutes of 30 hours of debate. Even if we had a cloture filing tonight or something, you'd still have two days more of debate before that ripens and you vote on it, after which you'd then have 30 hours of debate, providing that it were passed. A motion to proceed brought to the floor on something that there is no controversy on is subject to a filibuster. And then a cloture petition has to be filed and then two days have to pass before it ripens. Then you have a cloture vote. And then following the cloture, the minority says, well, we insist that the 30 hours post-cloture be used. And so 30 hours has to be burned off. And only then can you get to a vote on a non-controversial issue. That is what was wrong with the 111th Congress, among other things. A Senate gummed up with secret holds and time-eating filibusters and votes that were against even the notion of del deliberation and debate. So what is the 112th Congress doing to fix it? Senators Tom Udall of New Mexico, Tom Harkin of Iowa, and Jeff Merkley of Oregon offered up this today, a rules reform package that they say, quote, helps increase transparency, restores accountability, and fosters debate. The reform package won't actually be voted on until the Senate reconvenes towards the end of the month. But what could it actually change? To try to answer that, we're joined once again by Ezra Klein of The Washington Post, Newsweek, and MSNBC. Hello there, Ezra. Good evening, Chris. Okay, um, we talked about this earlier on the phone today, and I want to get your sense of how much this is going to change, and I wanna, I'm going to lay out three areas. So I think if you look at what was wrong, right, it was that there was a supermajority requirement, that one senator was able to do all sorts of crazy stuff in secret, and that everything ate up too much time. How does this rank along those sort of three distinct Senate problems? It doesn't really change number one. It does change number two, but I think number two is more offensive than it really was a problem in the sense that it actually changed the Senate very much. By and number two, you mean the secret three. holds? Secret holds. So right. you will still be able to do a hold, right? Tom Coburn can still say, I do not like this or that, and I'm going to put a hold on it. He, just has, he, he simply has to come out and say, I am Tom Coburn, I am doing this, I sign my name here. That is better. It's offensive, the idea that senators who we elect would do this stuff secretly. But it is not a particularly, it's not going to be a very big change. You're not going to have a different number of holds, okay. presumably. So, so one change is no more secret holds. You got to come out and say it. What mm -hmm. else is in the package? Okay, so there are two changes to the three. Sorry, to the filibuster itself. One change is that after judicial nomination, there's no longer 30 hours of post-cloture debate. Only two hours. That's good. It wastes a little bit less time. It isn't a huge deal in the scheme of things. When you get to the actual filibusters itself, it does not change the 60-vote requirement. It does not change the number of time it takes to get there. You can't filibuster a motion to proceed because then you're filibustering a the debate itself. And then finally, when you do filibuster, in theory, you're going to have to be on the, on the floor and talking, as opposed to saying, look, I've put in a, a motion to filibuster here. I'm going to get dinner. I'm going to go to the bathroom. You tell right. me when I get back if you've got okay. 60 votes. So those things, those major things won't change, though. And that's important okay. for people to realize. Right. Okay. But let's, now let's zoom in, because this stuff is bewildering, even for me who covers <laughs> it like full time. So let's zoom in on this, this one issue, right, which is that everybody has the Mr. Smith goes to Washington image of the filibuster in their head. That 
that's not what's being fulfilled. Senators Merkley, you'd all say, let's restore that. So, so this calls for basically, if you want to filibuster, there has to be a member of the minority party talking on the floor for the duration. How, won't that change things? I mean, doesn't that impose a logistical, organizational cost on the filibuster-er? Not that much. Uh, I don't believe it will. So you imagine you're Mitch McConnell. What this would do in a world where it's an individual filibustering is it would be very, very difficult on that individual. It'd be one guy out there, he'd have to go to the bathroom eventually, he'd get tired, his knees would buckle. But if you're Mitch McConnell controlling 43 Republicans or, or whatever the number is now, maybe 47, you just do shifts, right? You say, okay, uh, you're doing an hour seven to eight, you're doing eight to nine, you're doing nine to 10. It's difficult, you need somebody to schedule it, but it isn't the end of the world. The, it's the, not the end of the world. I, the, way I, the way I just put this for people though is that there's no piece of legislation you can think of that this shakes loose. This doesn't right. do, say what Bill Frist wanted to do, which was if he passed his bill there uh, to end the judicial nominations filibuster, a bunch of judges would have been confirmed the next day. This really is in a way that, in some ways, is sort of procedurally admirable on the, on the part of the Democrats it's about making the rules make a bit more sense. It doesn't do them any good in the short term. It doesn't make it easier for them to pass legislation in the next two years. You're, so you're saying this is the opposite of a power grab. This is essentially some sort of salu generally salutary, positive, but marginal good, uh, reforms to process. I'd go even further than that. The one really significant reform in here is the minority party is guaranteed three amendments on every right. single bill. So actually, the one thing that really does change here, the one thing that is a, a real difference in procedure, is that the minority party gets a right, really gets a right, gets guaranteed a right that they've wanted for some time and that can't be taken away from them. So it, it, it's a little bit funny. This is what happens when Democrats try to change the rules or grab power. They end up... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they end up doing something I think we, which you would have to have to say is very courteous. <laughs> it's yeah, it's like bizarro world uh, tyranny. Ezra Klein, <laughs> writer for the Washington Post and Newsweek, and an MSNBC contributor. Thanks so much for spelling it out. We're going to keep our eye on this and have you back. I am sure. a lot of analogies between the United States Senate and Star Trek, but the one good one is a doozy. The crew finds itself on the planet Imaniar, which has been at war with the planet Vendikar for so long that they found a more efficient way to fight. Vendikar has just dropped an atomic bomb, killing half a million people, but the crew notices no damages to any Imaniar city. Turns out the actual weapons are inside a simulation. The computer simply calculates how many would have died if there'd been an actual bomb, and that number of residents then dutifully walk into suicide booths to be disintegrated. But fortunately, no buildings are damaged. Apparently there are Republicans on the planet. The episode ends with William Shatner destroying the computers and explaining that war needs to be horrific to motivate nations to stop it. Destruction, death, disease, horror. In our third story, same goes for the filibuster. Chris Hayes joins me in a moment as Spock. Among other reforms, Democrats are about to try to end the computer simulation version of the thing. If you're going to blow up MNER, you're going to have to use real bombs. And if you're going to filibuster, you're going to have to stand up on the Senate floor and talk until you topple over. All right, sir, I guess I'll just have to speak to the people of my state from right here. 
And I'll tell you one thing, that wild horses aren't going to drag me off this floor until those people have heard everything I've got to say, even if it takes all winter. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. I think most Americans saw that movie. And really what that was all about is that he was very uncomfortable with something that was going on, with the direction uh, the Senate was moving. And he stood up for a long period of time, tried to rouse the American people to his cause. And, uh, and that, that's, uh, that's what we want to see. Far from trying to rouse the American people to a cause, the GOP minority in the 111th Congress wielded the filibuster as a weapon to help run out the clock, even when Republicans overwhelmingly supported the legislation in question. In November 2009, Republicans filibustered the Worker, Homeownership, and Business Assistance Act, a bill to extend unemployment compensation. After days of inactivity, the bill passed 98 to nothing. No Republicans voting against it. They filibustered a bill they fully intended to support. Same goes for the credit card holders' bill of rights, created to protect consumers from practices like arbitrary rate increases. That bill filibustered. Then it passed, 90 to 5. Or how about the Fraud Enforcement and Recovery Act, which allowed harsher punishment for financial mortgage and securities fraud? Filibustered, passed, 92 to 4. Martha Johnson waited nearly eight months while the minority delayed her confirmation as administrator of the General Services Administration. End result of that? Confirmed, 94 to 2. Wait, scratch that. Senators Jim Bunning and Jeff Sessions subsequently changed their two no votes to yes votes. Eight months of filibustering, no opposition. Senator Franken was left questioning the sanity of his fellow lawmakers. This month, my colleagues forced a cloture vote. They forced a cloture vote to approve a judicial nominee for the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. She was then confirmed unanimously, 99 to zero. And yet we were forced, uh, forced to vote for a filibuster. That's nuts. It was not always like this. For the better part of 200 years, the Senate was rarely exposed to the filibuster. In fact, were it not for Aaron Burr, we may never have had any filibusters. As vice president, Burr proposed doing away with a little used Senate procedure that ended open debate on legislation. In 1806, the Senate changed the rules, creating the potential for endless debates on bills, later called filibusters. Rarely was the filibuster enacted over the next century, mostly because the majority could just change the Senate rules if the filibuster was used to thwart legislation, which is exactly what happened in 1917, when 12 anti-war senators managed to kill a military arms bill. President Woodrow Wilson urged the Democratic Senate to change the rules. They adopted cloture of debate, in which a two-thirds vote would end a filibuster. That lasted through 1975, when a procedural battle led to a compromise agreement that lowered the cloture threshold to only 60 votes. The rule change coincided with a new system that allowed two or more pieces of legislation to be considered on the floor simultaneously. The Democratic majority leader of the time, Mike Mansfield, thought the two-track system would make it harder for the minority to hold up Senate business. 
Instead, he wound up making a filibuster easier. Now all a senator needed to do was announce an intention to filibuster, and the issue would be set aside until a cloture vote could be held. This type of procedural filibuster was enacted 136 times by the 111th Congress in 2009 and 2010, which is why Senator Udall and other Democrats want the Senate to go back to its roots. If you're going to obstruct, uh, if you're going to uh, uh, oppose something, you have to come out of the shadows. You have to go to the floor of the Senate and tell the American people why you're slowing everything down. If the filibuster rules are not changed, Senate Republicans will continue their strategy of block and delay even for legislation they intend to support. Each tied-up bill brings them closer to the goal Senate Minority Leader McConnell outlined in October. The single most important thing we want to achieve is for President Obama to be a one-term president. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Okay, I want to um, move to Rick's absolute favorite subject in the entire world. <laughs> which is the filibuster. Yeah, um, baby. <laughs> <laughs> so Senate Democrats may actually reform the filibuster. Yesterday, Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid addressed the issue in the Senate. We may not agree yet on how to fix the problem, but no one can credibly claim problems don't exist. No one who has watched this body operate since the current minority took office can say that it functions just fine. That wouldn't be true, would be dishonest. No one can deny that the filibuster has been used for purely political reasons, reasons far beyond those for which this protection was invented and intended. Okay, Rick, this is your chance. <laughs> well, Leader Reed is incorrect in thinking that the filibuster was invented. The filibuster really just happened. It is something that the Democrats uh, have ignored, put off for a very long time. Now, now they want to reform it, and thank God. Uh, they want to reform it at a moment when, over the next, oh, 10, 12 years, it's likely, as likely to work against them as it is to work for them, because the Republicans have a, probably a better than even shot at capturing the Senate at the next election. But in the long run, doing something about the filibuster is good for governance, no matter who's in power. It's because? Good. Because we can have election after election, but if a minority in the already highly unrepresentative Senate can at will block action, block nominations, then it's very difficult to run a democracy in a coherent way. You make an interesting argument in the comment this week. You say that the, you describe it as the sour sense of disappointment that has lingered on over the, over the last two years over Obama and the Congress. And you say it's due more to systemic problems than to either Obama's weaknesses or the, all the endless political wrangling on the Hill. Could you just elaborate on that a little bit? 
Yeah, we always blame the moral qualities of our politicians for our disappointments. And uh, what that overlooks is the fact that our politicians are human beings. And it's really these hydraulics of the system that are the problem, a system that is uh, higgledy-piggledy and not designed. It's really nobody's fault that we've uh, come to this. But we can do something about it. We can't do anything about uh, the major features of our political system. But the filibuster, which is a kind of historic accident and which serves to make the Senate unaccountable and which is a machine for creating disappointment and anger on all sides, ought to be dispensed with. I I guess I would challenge a a couple of points about that. The filibuster, while it's not exactly enunciated in in the Constitution, it does derive from the free debate in the Senate. The central point you make, while passionately made and, and characteristically elegantly made, is flawed in this regard. Your last uh, piece, the comment that Dorothy referenced, you began with a recitation of this most productive period since the book of Genesis. (laughs) I mean, you mentioned the the tax cuts and unemployment relief uh, package, the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, uh, ratification of START, the health care coverage for the the responders, and that was just in the lame duck second. That doesn't even go back to the two years that preceded it, in such a flawed system, so badly hobbled by such quirks, accidental quirks of history as, as the filibuster, one just wonders how, in fact, such a productive period could have occurred. Well, I could explain that to you, Peter. <laughs> but I'm not sure we have time no, we on don't. this just podcast. But, I, I, let me, but yeah, let me ahead. pick out one of the things you said. The filibuster is actually uh, unconstitutional. Now, I know it's not going to be declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court does not interfere in the inner workings of the legislature or the elected uh, House and Senate. But it seems to me that perfectly clear that on the face of it, it's unconstitutional. The Constitution specifies six particular cases where a supermajority is required for action. So it's reasonable to infer that they didn't think it was required in other cases. It also says that a quorum to do business is a majority of the body and that in a case of a tie the vice president has a vote to break the tie now though both of those provisions are pure nonsense if you have a requirement that you need 60 percent not of the those president voting but of the entire membership of the senate in order to do anything at all that seems completely to me obvious and i think the framers would be absolutely horrified at the filibuster. Would you mind repeating that? <laughs> Rick, I want to ask you one, um, a very practical For question. For 24 hours, I'll repeat it. Yeah. <laughs> um, answer, me, answer this. I, I love all the lofty references to the Constitution, but what w- didn't get achieved in this last Congress, given the, 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 the terrible effects the filibuster is having on doing business there? Well, uh, the biggest thing that didn't get achieved was anything at all on climate change. That is such a scary, terrifying issue that we spend most of our time not thinking about it. But, Rick, you could go back into the Wayback Machine, create a time machine, put us all in it, make it so that a filibuster was never come into existence. Uh huh. And you might not have gotten, in fact, I would argue, wouldn't have gotten climate change legislation 
through in these last two years. I mean, that's the... It had support. You had, you had a majority uh, of the House in favor of it and a majority of the Senate in favor of it. I mean, that's what it's supposed to take, according to what we were taught in school about how a bill becomes a law. And if you, if you, let's turn that on that Wayback Machine. If you turn on that Wayback Machine on and you go back to, say, oh, 1915, 1916, 1920, well, you would have had the passage of anti-lynching bills and civil rights bills. You'd have had that in the 1930s. And if you'd had that, then the whole way that that civil rights unfolded in the country would have been different. All the changes that happened in the 60s might have happened in the 30s or, or in the 40s. Because Democratic Southern senators were filibustering. Exactly. Yeah. The argument just seems a self-refutation. If, in fact, and again, I think your piece is a beautiful example of that. I mean beautiful literally. As you know, I'm a great admirer of your prose, but <laughs> truly I am. But I, It's not your politics. But if you make the argument in the same column, which you do, Rick, mm -hmm. so beautifully, that, man, a lot of great stuff happened. But our government isn't very effective because of this quirky thing, which, by the way, the elimination of which would make my side even stronger while it, while it still has a majority. It just seems... It would make both sides stronger when they have a majority. Yeah, oh, absolutely it would, yes. But your side, though, is dedicated to the proposition that government can't do things well. So when government, indeed, because of the filibuster, among other things, turns out to not be able to do things well, that's a piece of evidence that strengthens your ideology. So that's one of the reasons why the filibuster and all the weirdnesses of American politics favor you guys. By you guys, you mean we Americans? <laughs> <laughs> We've left over 400 House bills lying on the floor, collecting dust, unprocessed, unconsidered. Indeed, the saying in the U.S. House of Representatives is the U.S. Senate is where good House bills go to die. A supermajority that's required to approve treaties or a supermajority that is required to impeach, but not to pass legislation. That wasn't the vision. So today I rise to say we can do better in the U.S. Senate and that we owe it under our constitutional responsibilities to do better. In 1975, they changed the rules in the Senate. So if somebody wanted to filibuster something, it wouldn't take 67 votes to shut that guy up anymore. It would take just 60 votes. A year before that, they changed the rules to carve out a sort of get out of jail free card for certain things so that bills that only dealt with the budget could be exempt from the filibuster altogether. They haven't changed the rules again in the intervening 35 plus years. And in the intervening 35 plus years, I don't know if you've heard, but the filibuster has kind of blown up. In 1975, the last time the Senate was so freaked out about it, they were moved to fix the filibuster. The 93rd Congress had just posted a then record 31 of them. And that is downright quaint by today's standards. Look at that. 
Part of the problem with the filibuster is that it's sort of impossible to talk about. Um, here at this show, remember when we tried to create a brand new cartoon caricature to explain the problem of the filibuster in order to make it easier to talk about and then maybe hopefully someday easier to solve? Remember when we did that? Can we get a um, drum? Can we do that? Can you guys give me a drum roll? The winner is the Tarantino. The Tarantino, because it kills bills. So here's how it works in a sentence, right? Like, extending unemployment earned a majority of yes votes, but it failed to pass anyway because of the Tarantino. Awesome idea, right? Did not catch on. Uh, that was February of last year. I've since thrown away that blazer. Uh, and since then, the filibuster just filibustered away all the way through 2010, just like it's been doing since 1975. And the senators who have been in the Senate for a while have become the proverbial frogs in the pot of boiling water about this. As the very nature of the filibuster has changed slowly over time, they mostly don't seem to have noticed much or cared very much. For the most part, the old guard has been willing to just let the Senate become the place where legislation goes to die. But a crop of newer, younger senators, and also Tom Harkin, uh, have turned out to be not so tolerant of what the filibuster has become. They want, for the first time since 1975, they want for the problem presented by the filibuster, the problem of nothing getting done in the Senate, to be fixed. And over the course of the last year, they've proposed lots of different ways of approaching it. If somebody wants to filibuster, make them actually show up and talk. Make them do what we all think of as a filibuster. Or make the number of votes needed to stop the filibuster decrease over time as the filibuster goes on for days and days and days. Or stop allowing filibusters on everything. Stop allowing them, for example, on procedural votes or votes on whether or not to debate something. Are any of those changes, any changes to this rule structure possible? New senators proposed a menu of different reforms. Can any of them be done? The first day that the U.S. Senate is in session is when the Senate can change its rules. I mean, conceivably, they can change them at other times, too, but really, day one is when it happens. And even though Senate days are like football minutes, and that first day was really long, that first day is now officially over, and none of those changes has happened yet. So what does that mean for fixing this problem? Does it ever get to happen? Joining us now is Democratic Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon, one of the primary champions of filibuster reform. Senator Merkley, it's really nice to have you back on the show. Thank you for being here. Oh, oh you're welcome. It's great to be with you. Um, both you and um, Senator Tom Udall of New Mexico, who you've worked with on this, um, have yes. made appearances on this show recently. And the last we heard, the plan was to bring up filibuster reform on the first day of the new Congress, when you'd be able to fix it with a simple uh, majority vote. What happened to that plan? Well, that was the plan, and it was based on how the Senate had operated historically, where all sides agree to put the resolution on the floor and debate it. And then down the line, after it's been debated a certain period of time, someone would move to close debate. And at that point, you would have a constitutional option, and that is simply that if 51 affirmed the ability to close debate, you could get to a final vote. It might take a lot of maneuvering along the way. But the Republicans found a way to filibuster the filibuster. Uh. They found a way to say, hey, we are not going to go along with the way things always have been done, and you're going to have to go through this complicated protocol that involves morning hours, something that's never been done, and if you try it, we will talk it to death because you're way down at the end of the agenda. And there became, it turns out there's no real way to get something onto the floor once you strip away the collaboration, the belief that we should debate in the U.S. Senate. Once you strip that away, 
the rules never took into account that, that the Senate would go that far. So we ran into an obstacle we didn't, we didn't anticipate. Well, you know, when people talked about the likelihood of this reform actually happening, nobody ever debated the popularity of reforming the filibuster. All Democratic senators serving in this current Congress signed on to a letter saying that it should be changed in some way. It should be improved. Nobody debated the merits. What was debated was whether or not it could get adequate support and whether or not the rules are so fungible that they could ever be tacked down enough to be changed. But you think that this was ultimately defeated by the rules just being used against you, not by a lack of support. Well, certainly never got to that point where people had to show all their cards about using 51 under the constitutional option. And there was some concern about us exercising that door and thereby giving the Republicans uh, additional encouragement to use that, that pathway uh, two years from now or four years from now. My argument had always been, look, if we responsibly reform the rules to help deliberation for the minority and majority, that's our best protection against abuse in the future. But whether we never knew how many votes we would have because we never got to that, that point. On the substance, as you say, I think we had very strong support on the constitutional pathway. We wouldn't have known until we got there. What are you going to do next? I know that you're committed to these reforms because you're committed to the Senate as an institution. I know that you think this would not be something that would lend partisan advantage to either side, but you think this would be the right thing uh, for yes. the legislative branch. I know we've talked about this before. How are you going to keep pursuing this? Well, first we went to the floor, and, we, and Tom Harkin and Tom Udall and I made the case. You showed some footage of that. We said, listen, the Senate is broken. So let's work together to fix it. And we did unanimous consent amendments to try to get things onto the floor to get past that logjam that I was referring to the, the Republicans have put in place. Well, at least the Republicans are now on record that they turned that down. Then tomorrow, we will have a debate on several rule changes. We will have votes. And unfortunately, it's under these very high totals that make it virtually in, impossible to, to make change happen. But I see this as a path on a very long battle. We always knew that in a single cycle you weren't going to make the Senate over completely to a functioning uh, institution of deliberation. But having the debate, they haven't had these debates for 35 years, having the debate, having people have to cast a vote, having voters give feedback, it is, it's a step forward, but it's going to be a longer journey than we, than we hoped. Well, I will um, happily rescind the name, the Tarantino, which did not help in your efforts, <laughs> and try to come up with a new one uh, when you get back at it. Democratic Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon, uh, thank you for your time today, sir. Good luck thank, with this. Thank you so much. the show. My name is Larry Jones. I live in Fort Natchez, Texas. Uh, the gentleman that spoke last on your January 26th episode about economics, he referred to the biblical par parable of teaching someone to fish as opposed to merely giving cash back to people. While making retraining education available for those whose jobs have or are becoming obsolete is a good idea, i got to point out that many of these people are close to retirement and they're looking at slashed incomes and a life of poverty in their later years. And I take issue with his premise. It would, I would consider a cash refund, a redistribution of wealth to the general populace to be nothing less than justice. Wall Street, our government, local, state, and federal have been taking, I could say even stealing, 
and cheerfully spending our money for decades. It's been given to war profiteers or stolen by exorbitant fees, double-crossing bank schemes, untapped fines, and polluting our environment at great cost to all of us. There's a band called Toy Machine, and they have a lyric that's rather appropriate. Uh, men of reason, not of rhyme, keep the spoils and share your crime. It's what these people have been doing. And people, as he seems to imply, aren't unwilling to work. They've been supporting these leeches for almost a hundred years. Don't you think it's time these thieves are required to give the money back? Indeed, to compensate the people they've cheated and stolen from? Anyway, that's pretty much what I have to say. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Bye. Hi, this is Nathan from New York City. I'd like to just to tell you, Jay, congratulations on the five-year anniversary of The Best of Left. I love the show. I can't call in today, though, to bring out a conversation that we've had over email to the listeners. Unfortunately for the economic coverage of the show, many of the people you take clips from frequently bemoan the deficit and the debt, and worse, do not even provide any explanation for why these things are terrible. Why are budget deficits bad? What is so different between government securities that don't pay out interest, i.e. cash, and government securities that do. I would love to have this debate over Collins or on the Facebook page with other listeners. Mostly, I want people to question mainstream assumptions that even our favorite liberal commentators take as given. I just want to say again, congratulations today, and I hope people argue with me in the future. Yeah, my name's Nathan, calling from Colorado, and, uh, you know, there's been a preponderance of the I Am a Mormon commercials lately, and it uh, got me thinking uh, what prompted that, and I uh, wouldn't be surprised if that was kind of uh, uh, initiated or uh, done to promote Mitt Romney, uh, just sort of lay the groundwork for uh, a gradual acceptance of uh, him being a Mormon. Uh, again, absolutely nothing wrong with that, but uh, interesting theory that's completely baseless, but would uh, enjoy hearing your thoughts on it. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to those who called in to leave a message at the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. Now, uh, I have to get into something immediately because it is revolutionary, and I'm not even kidding. So I need to tell you guys about something called Donate Your Account. Dot com. And this is a momentous occasion in the history of this show. For longtime listeners, you will probably have heard me say in the past that I am uh, usually in the neighborhood of two to three years behind whatever curve I happen to be referring to because it takes me that long usually to catch on to a good idea and realize that I should get involved with it. You know, I was dragged kicking and screaming onto Facebook, didn't want to do it, and now it's been, you know, really great and useful for the show. This is going to be a momentous occasion because it is the first time, maybe the only time ever, that I will be on the absolute cutting edge of something that I really, really think is going to be gigantic. So uh, donateyouraccount.com works like this. It's uh, it's completely intertwined with Twitter. It's an application for Twitter. And to give a really short uh, tutorial for those of you who may not know, 
Twitter, uh, basically, you can send messages to people who choose to follow you. So obviously, the show has a Twitter account, and many of you in the audience have decided to look up the show on Twitter and follow it. So whenever I send out a message through that system, it pops up on your screens. Now, that's that's the absolute baseline for Twitter. The next step, something that's that's really integral to uh, to how Twitter can be used really virally, is um, something called retweeting. That's when you get a message and you want to then pass it on, not just receive it, but you then pass it on to your followers. And it's it's exa- it's the technological version of and they tell two friends and they tell two friends and so on and so on. Like that's exactly what retweeting is. And so it makes Twitter a really powerful way to get a, a, a message out because if it's a really good message, it'll get passed on not just to the people who are following you, but to you know the followers of your followers and so on and so on. So what Donate Your Account is, is it, it automates that exact system. The most powerful aspect of Twitter is now being automated. So in the past, in order for anything to be retweeted, it needed to be manually done. So you'd have to get a message from me and then make the conscious decision and you know actual effort to pass that on. But what Donate Your Account allows you to do is actually choose a, you know, a person, entity, uh, you know, individual, organization, cause, whatever, whoever has a Twitter account and has set up a campaign for themselves, as I have done, and it allows you to uh, give me permission to send messages through your account and have them be retweeted by you automatically. And it, it gives you total control over how often I'm allowed to do that. The, uh, the maximum number you can allow is one per day. So even if you do, did the maximum amount, it's, it's not going to be like a flood. Uh, it can never be a flood. But you can choose one per day, one per week, or one per month, whatever you feel comfortable with. And so what this means is whenever I have something really important that I want to say, the, the most important, uh, you know, tweet, and believe me, like I'm, I hate the terminology too for all of you like cringing over tweeting and retweeting. I hear you. Uh, so when I have the most important thing to say of the day or the most important thing of the month I want to say, I can send it not just to the like 1,000 or so people who actively follow uh, Best of the Left on Twitter, but I can then actually pass it through to your account if you've you know donated it so that it goes to all of your followers as well. So the potential for you know expanding the reach of a show like this or an organization or any any good cause that you want to donate to who who sets up this this program, you're expanding their reach exponentially. So as I said, I think this is absolutely revolutionary. I heard about it about 24 hours ago when listening to the majority report, Sam Cedar's majority report, uh, someone who kind of works on his staff helping out with his show invented this. And so their show was the very first people to ever experiment with it and try it out. And as Sam uh, announced the existence of this application, he basically made the prediction that this is so powerful that it won't be long before you begin to see, uh, you know, like protests in, in Egypt utilizing this exact technology 
to not just get their message out, but get it out in a major, major way, you know, bigger than it uh, was before. Uh, and I totally agree. So last night I heard about this being introduced. I immediately recognized it as, you know, a really big deal. I immediately signed up for my own account and immediately began writing emails to activists and uh, organizations that I know and and other radio shows, of course. So uh, the Young Turks have already signed up for this. The Majority Report, of course, was already signed up. The David Pakman Show is also signed up and uh, and more to come, guaranteed. Everyone who has responded, it was immediate and overwhelmingly positive. Everyone recognizes uh, what a big deal this is. So what you can do to be supportive of this is simply go to the websites of any show that is doing this campaign. For instance, bestoftheleft.com, of course, is going to have a very prominent link uh, near the top of the page uh, with a little blue box that says donate your account. You see that uh, you know several people have already begun to donate, and you just click on that. It's really simple. There's even a written explanation that gives details of you know what's going on, what exactly is going to be allowed and not allowed, and so on, and uh, give access that way. And you've effortlessly basically pledged your support for the future trusting that I will be sending out good and important messages that you would like for your followers uh, to be aware of. And of course, a good time is had by all. So that's about it. If you have questions, please, uh, you know, write them in or, uh, or leave a voicemail or whatever. I will respond to it on the show. You will definitely be hearing me continue to talk about this. Um, if you listen to other progressive shows, I guarantee you will begin to hear them talk about it as well. This is something that's, uh, it's going to spread like wildfire. It is, uh, it's like democracy. You don't have to push it on people. They will steal it. It is such a good idea that, uh, it's, it's going to be everywhere. Uh, so I'm really excited to be right in on the ground level, uh, before this takes off. So that's that. Now I just want to thank a couple of members before I go. Todd L. signed up for a membership on September 27th as a leftist. And Art F. signed up on November 6th uh, and actually signed up as a socialist for his monthly membership. So huge thanks to Todd and Art and all of the members who make the show possible. Everyone can support the show, of course, by spreading the word to everyone you know about it or by donating a tweet through donateyouraccount.com slash left. You can stay tuned in to the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all of those details are always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 10 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Bitch burning on a shiny sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who'll take you out in the open door This is not my life It's just a fall